Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. Father, we ask your blessing upon us now as we have heard your word, we ask, Lord, that you might open it to us, that you might speak to us, that you might heal us, change us, give us peace. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It's natural on Christmas Eve to reflect on the story of Christ's nativity. And when you think about the nativity story, in a way, it is a story of journeys, there are a lot of different journeys that take place in this story, all of them converging on a single destination. You might think of the nativity as a story of how all these various people in God's story make it to the manger where Jesus Christ is born. Uh, there's the journey of Joseph and Mary, a kind of fearful and trepidatious journey, but with a lot of faith and a lot of assurance from on high. There's the awe-filled journey of the shepherds. There's that journey of hope that the wise men make over a long distance. All of these different paths, all of these different journeys converging at the manger, at what until that moment was the most important event in human history. But the nativity is about other journeys too. Not just those physical journeys, but also journeys that took place generation to generation. 
journeys not just of individuals, but of peoples, uh, journeys of ideas. There's a journey of hope developing over time. There's a path of longing for something that's being revealed by God little by little through shadows and through types over the course of history. And all of those paths, all of those journeys also converge here at the manger. They all lead to one place. They all end up here at the birth of the anointed God-man and on his coming self-sacrifice. Now, the birth we remember at Christmas, the self-sacrifice we remember at Easter. But Christmas and Easter are two threads woven so tightly that you really can't pick them apart. You really do need to see them all together. There are threads I want us to reflect on this morning, interwoven, interlocking threads, threads of longing, two threads winding around each other, two longings through history, the history of the Old Testament that are fulfilled all at once here at the manger. The longing for the anointed king who was promised and the longing for the God-man who would come to save us. These two longings woven together over time come to fruition here at the manger. When those two paths come together, the result is redemption. The result is Christ. Our salvation from sin, our redemption to become fully realized glorified human beings. And so that's the path this morning that I want you to think about. Those two journeys, those two threads, the Messiah and the incarnation, the path that led to the anointed one and the path that led to the coming of the God-man, Jesus Christ. From sin, from fullness, we've been saved from our transgressions, and saved so that we might be fully who we were made to be. So I want to talk about that, but first, before we talk about that, we have to talk about the destination a little bit. God doesn't always reveal the destination in our lives. Oftentimes, we think we know where we're going. We think where God's plan is taking us, and it turns out we had no idea and were completely wrong. Sometimes God does not show us where things are leading, but... When he does pull back the curtain, when he does reveal something, it's important for us to pay attention. People who were longing for the birth of the Messiah may not have known exactly what it was that they were longing for or who they were longing for. They didn't know exactly what or who the Messiah would be, but they did have an idea of what he would do. And that's what I want us to think about right here. John the Baptist proclaimed what he would do. In the text that we've just read, John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They knew that much. The angel of the Lord declared it in Matthew 1.21, which we've also read. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, or Joshua, for he will save his people from their sin sins. That much of the destination was clear. That much was revealed. When he comes, he will do something, and what he will do is he will save us 
from our sin. Sin is the problem. Sin is the reason, or at least part of the reason, why they were waiting for him. Now, we celebrate the birth of Jesus today uh, and tomorrow. Throughout our world, throughout our culture, people all around us will be observing this season. Some will do it out of faith. Many will do it out of a sort of, uh, I don't know, almost as a cultural relic, like a, a neat nostalgic artifact of things we no longer actually believe. Many people will come together and sing songs about the birth of Jesus without really knowing what the meaning of that birth was. But here, in these passages, we get a picture of why this baby in a manger had to come. He didn't come to ignore your sin. If he came to save your sin, he didn't come to ignore it. But he also didn't come to rub your nose in it either. He came to free you from it. He came to give you power to turn from your sin, to turn away from death towards life. I've said this many times before, but the more you see the horror of your own sin, the more you see the glory of salvation. The bigger your sin becomes, the more you appreciate what God did in order to overcome it. Because you begin to see just how difficult defeating sin really is. Not just difficult, but impossible. Impossible. The more you realize how all-encompassing the reign of sin is, the more you realize how impossible it is to defeat it. And the more you rejoice at the words of Jesus when the disciples ask him, in Matthew 19, who then can be saved? And Jesus answers, with man this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. All things are possible. The people who were waiting on Jesus to come rejoiced at his arrival because they were waiting for God to do the impossible. They were waiting on him to save them from their sin, and so are we. This is what we celebrate. This is what we long for as we rejoice at the coming of Jesus Christ. But what I want to do is think about their longing and how it relates to ours. Because there are in the Old Testament these two threads, these two uh, anticipations. One is a longing for the Messiah to come. The other is this longing for uh, the God-man, for the incarnation. One of them, I would say, is more obvious and apparent. One of them less so, but both of them are there, woven together throughout the course of the Old Testament. And I want to talk about those. First, let's talk about the Messiah thread. Because they, like us, were waiting for a king. I was talking to David Geyer recently, and he shared something interesting. Every year, uh, the South Dakota Symphony performs Handel's Messiah. And after preparing the orchestra and chorus, he had an observation that he shared with me, which was this. Obviously, uh, in working with the, the chorus, he's working with people from many different backgrounds, uh, many different experiences, uh, some who uh, believe deeply in the meaning of the words they're singing, and others who really don't know anything about 
the meaning of this. And what he came to realize was there's one aspect of the text of Messiah that seemed to be most difficult, or put it this way, uh, the, the thing people seem to struggle the most to relate to, like the hope that it was hardest to share in, and that hope was centered around this idea of kingship, that it was hard for people to understand why they were singing with hopefulness about the coming of a king. Why would they want a king of kings or a lord of lords? Because today in the 21st century, liberated consumers like us are not looking to be ruled over. Right? We're not looking for some authority figure in the sky to suddenly appear and run our lives for us. We don't sing about the coming of kings. If anything, we sing about the defeat of kings, the toppling of them, so that we might be free from all authority but our own. But when you sing, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, it helps if you sound like you mean it. And so David's dilemma was how to explain this stuff in a way that those singing it could understand. Like, how would you do that? If you were faced with the dilemma, how would you explain to someone why this, this idea that to us does not seem very hopeful would be full of hope and joy? How would you help modern people understand why anyone would long for a king. Well, you might start with the title of the work, Messiah, because Messiah means anointed one. And why would the anointed one be anointed in the first place? Because you anoint kings. Right there in the title, it's all about kingship. Because the Messiah comes to be a king. The Messiah is meant to be the heir of King David. He's meant to sit once again on David's throne. Before David became king, God sent the prophet Samuel to anoint him for the office. Long before David ever wore a crown, his head dripped with the anointing oil that Samuel had applied to him. So the truth that's hidden in plain sight, is that the entire work Messiah, by definition, is about the coming of a king. There's no Messiah apart from kingship. Kingship isn't some weird tangent that the text takes. It is what it's all about. And there's a shift in thinking that can help, I think, understand why a longing for a king would be a good thing. Uh, if you go back to Isaiah 9, which is what those wonderful counselor words are quoted from, uh, right before you get that famous, his name shall be called, there is this line, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. We don't have much use for kings, but government, we understand. Government serves a purpose. We look to government to fix problems. In fact, in our disenchanted age where we're convinced that nothing but what is material is real, it often seems like there is nothing left to invest our hopes in but government. Imagine this. Imagine that tomorrow on Christmas Day, the government held a press conference and announced that they had ended poverty 
that they had brought peace to Gaza and to Ukraine, in fact, ended war around the world, that they had cured cancer, and don't worry about April 15th because they've also abolished taxes. If the government announced that news, you might join me in singing, wonderful, because that's what we look to government to do, to fix things. But you probably already know that's not going to happen. There's not going to be a press conference like that because you don't have to be cynical to acknowledge that the government cannot do that. No government has come close to doing all of that. Well, the reason to sing Messiah like you mean it is that one government will do all that and more. The government of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Lion of Judah, his government will end the reign of sin. What no other king could do, this king has accomplished. But then you have to ask yourself, how? How is it possible for one king to come along and to do what no other king could accomplish? If King David couldn't do it, how could any son of David do it? That brings us to that second thread. Because we're not just waiting on a king, but we're waiting on a particular king. We're waiting on the God-man, the incarnate word, Jesus Christ. The Messiah is a king, but he's more than just a king. And that's what John in his prologue makes really clear. When John writes about Jesus, he begins not with the nativity, but with the creation. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And it's that Word, that creative Word, who was there at the beginning, who is God, that later in verse 14, John says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, if you ask, how can this king do what no king or government ever has done before? You begin to see the answer when you realize that the Messiah is God in the flesh. John the Baptist, the last of the Old Testament prophets, the herald of the Messiah, looked at Jesus and said, this is the one. He is the one that we've been waiting for. The Apostle John, the beloved disciple in the first chapter of his gospel, as we've just read, weaves together the longing for the Messiah and the longing for God in the flesh and says, it's the same one. It's the same one. The one that we've been waiting for, the Messiah that we've been waiting for, is the Word made flesh. And we call this mystery of Jesus' full divinity and his full humanity the incarnation. Now, all the kings who came before him were types and shadows. In that beautiful phrase of the Westminster Confession, they were types and shadows for signifying Christ to come. Like every king, whoever reigned, whoever tried and failed to fix his people's woes, pointed forward to the coming of the king who would do it. There are two meditations in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. If you've been following along over this Advent, in a sense, you already know 
what I'm about to say. Uh, if you haven't, then you're in for a treat because there are some reflections in that daily liturgy that really highlight how profound the incarnation is, but also how profoundly signaled the incarnation is in the Old Testament. I got really excited when I read this first one by John Owen, and I read it out loud to Lori, expecting her to be excited as well. And let's just say it didn't come across, because the language is a little bit stilted. So listen to this, and then I'll, I'll, I'll translate a little bit. But John Owen writes, After the fall, there is nothing spoken of God in the Old Testament, nothing of his institutions, nothing of the way and manner of dealing with the church, but what has respect unto the future incarnation of Christ? In other words, everything that's revealed from Genesis 3.15 forward, everything God tells him, tells us about himself, is all pointing to the coming of Christ. Like all the details, the institutions, he says, the, the, the priestly order, the temple, all of that stuff is done and revealed, pointing forward to Christ. Listen to this. He says, and it had been absurd to bring in God under perpetual anthropopathies as grieving, repenting, being angry, well-pleased, and the like, were it not but that the divine person intended was to take on him the nature wherein such affections do dwell. Okay, so that phrase, perpetual anthropopathies, maybe needs some explaining. But as you know, in the Old Testament, God is constantly being referred to as if he's just a big, powerful human. Right? God uh, gets angry. God has human affections. Uh, even uh, God is described as if he had a human body. Right? And that kind of language, theologians will, will call uh, anthropopathic in the case of the emotions, or uh, in the case of the body, uh, it's, it's uh, anthropomorphic. So these types of language are an accommodation to our human understanding, describing God as if he were one of us so that we might better understand. But Owen says it's more than that, actually. He says it would have been absurd to speak of God in these terms had it not always been his intention to take on flesh and dwell among us. So that every time we see in Scripture God being referred to in these human ways, there's a little signal, a little flag, get ready, he's coming, he's going to become one of us. And all this language that is accommodated to us is going to make sense. Uh, Herman Bavink, the great Dutch theologian, uh, reinforces this. He writes, when God creates humans in his image and dwells and works with his spirit in them, exerts influence on their heart and head, speaks to them, and makes himself known to them and understood by them, that is an act of condescension and accommodation to his creature, an anthropomorphizing of God. And so, in a sense, and to that extent, a humanization of God. In other words, Scripture uses this language to bring God down to our level, to our understanding. But then he says, given with and in creation is the possibility of revelation and incarnation. For while the incarnation is certainly different from all other revelation, it is also akin to it. It is its climax, crown, and completion. All revelation tends toward and groups itself around the incarnation as the highest richest, and most perfect act of self-revelation. So yes, that anthropomorphic language 
accommodates God to our understanding, but it does more than that. It signals that God will accommodate himself to the human in the most profound way possible by becoming one of us in Jesus Christ. And all God's revelation comes to a head in this revelation of himself in Jesus. Why? Why is it necessary that God do this? It's necessary because of the impossibility of overcoming sin by any other means. It's because with God all things are possible, but only with God are all things possible. To be more precise, it's because the God-man is necessary, because in the incarnation we have the full divinity of Christ, which is the power to do what must be done, and also the full humanity. In other words, he's one of the people who needs to do what must be done. A human being must do this. As John Calvin writes, there's another reason why it was necessary for him who was to be our Redeemer to be true God and true man. It was his task to swallow up death. Who could do that but life itself? It was his task to conquer sin. Who could do that but righteousness? It was his task to overcome the powers of the air, that is, the demons. Who could do that but a power greater than world or air? In whom then do life, righteousness, and the power of heaven reside? But in God alone. Therefore the Lord, in his great kindness, became our redeemer when he chose to ransom us. Those are the threads that come together in the birth of Christ. The longing for the king, the longing for the, the savior, the incarnate word, the only one who could do that work of redemption. And it is redemption, ultimately, that we're longing for. Salvation. Because if you're longing for a Messiah and you're longing for a God-man, it's because of what that Messiah and God-man can do what he alone can do, which is to save us from our sins. Because redemption was always the destination, the anointed God-man was always the path, the only path. Redeeming us, saving us from our sin, that's the work that he came to do. Now, we've already talked about salvation from sin right at the beginning as a kind of reason for all of this. And it's easy sometimes to forget that there's more to the coming of Christ than salvation from sin. And as I say that, I want to be careful saying it because I don't want to minimize that as if salvation from sin is, is not enough because, of course, it's, it's everything. And yet, what Jesus does is more than just save us from our sins. Our salvation is not just salvation from, it is salvation to it is freedom from, but it is also a freedom to. We are not only under the reign of sin and death because of sin, but because of sin, we're not what we were made to be. And we never become what we were made to become. In other words, none of us lives as we should. The world is not as it should be. And none of us can, can attain to the, the full humanity, the expression of humanity, our created purpose. All of that is barred by sin. Jesus does more than remove the bar, though. He leads us into the fullness that we were made to possess. When Jesus, the anointed God-man, sacrifices 
himself, he not only frees us from our sin, but also restores us. He frees us to be what humans were made to be. And he shows us what humanity is meant to look like. So the two threads, the Messiah thread and the incarnation thread, become one at the manger. But in Scripture, the place, I think, where they become most uh, beautifully one is actually in Revelation, where the Apostle John, once again, shares an image that is a kind of, uh, it may seem at first a confusion, but it's a a fusion, a, a merger of two great images. And it's that vision of God's throne room, which we read. The whole passage is, is beautiful, but it's just that, that one moment, the, the turn that I want you to look at. This is in verses 5 and verse 6, at least the first part of verse 6. John says, One of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. There's a lecture I do at Worldview Academy where I always talk about this passage. I don't know if you're allowed to have favorite passages in the Bible. It's all pretty good. But uh, this is one of mine that I go back to again and again and again. And whenever I walk students through it, I always do this thing where I try to put them in John's place where someone says, hey, look over there. And, and, and he looks, and he's told one thing, but he sees another. Like he's told, hey, look at, look at the lion. But then he turns and he doesn't see a lion, he sees a lamb, right? There's a a shift. Like he's told to look at the lion, right? The the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, that's a messianic image. He's conquered, which is what the Messiah, the anointed king has come to do. So he's pointed in that direction. He turns, he doesn't see Aslan though. Instead, he sees the lamb standing as though it had been slain. That's a sacrificial image and an incarnational image as well. Remember in John chapter 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and then John the Baptist points as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So in this moment, in this, this highly sort of symbolic representation of the presence of God, you have these two symbols, these two threads coming together in the one person of Jesus Christ who is the conquering lion and the sacrificial lamb all at once, and whose great victory through self-sacrifice is what this is all about. The lion and the lamb are one and the same. And through his giving of himself, the anointed God-man shows his power. So many paths converge in the manger in the nativity. So many signs and symbols overlap and, and, and become one. And they all bring us to this place. They all bring us to the presence of Jesus Christ. They bring us to the manger, and then they bring us to the cross, and then they bring us into union with Christ himself. And I don't know where God has brought you. I don't know the journey, and I don't know the destination for each and every one of you. But I do know where he's leading. I do know where he's calling. I do know where he's pointing. He's leading you to receive him, to believe in him, to become his children. 
The destination that he's pointing you towards is to be born into Christ, into new life. To know that he came for you. To know that he became one of you. To know that he sacrificed himself for you. And that he unites himself to you. And if at Christmas you can know those things, then you have reason to be very merry indeed. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.